Church, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to the fifth chapter of the book of Isaiah. Chapter 5 of Isaiah represents the final chapter of what we've referred to as the preface of the book of Isaiah, the first five chapters. In chapter 6, we have Isaiah's call to ministry, and then thereafter, it will follow sequentially his life. But this is the final part of the preface and the most sobering. Bob, thank you for that, uh, that time of worship, rehearsing the gospel, and particularly that last song, which I think is important for us to hold in the backdrop as we encounter a passage of Scripture that is a heavy and dire warning of judgment. So far in the book of Isaiah, we have encountered in each of the four chapters a prophecy of judgment, but that's also been married by a foreshadowing or prophecy of either the gospel and Jesus or the new Jerusalem that is promised to come after the Jerusalem of, of Isaiah's day is done away with. But no such good news is found in chapter 5. There is no prophecy of the new city that is coming in this chapter. Instead, Isaiah concludes the preface of this book with a heavy and dire warning of the judgment that is coming because of how far Jerusalem has drifted from their God. I want to give you the outline of this chapter. It's very simple, but I want, us, I want you to see it. I want you to hold it before we read the passage, so that as we go through the passage, the chapter together, um, it will make more sense to you. The first seven verses are a song, a song lamenting the sin of Israel. It's a song that Isaiah sings of the vineyard of the Lord. Isaiah starts the song and then the Lord himself chimes in. It's a song lamenting that although Israel, Judah, had been given every opportunity and every privilege to be a fruitful vineyard, they've squandered that opportunity and produced a harvest of rotten fruit instead. And so this song laments this, and the Lord explains soberly what he intends to do with his vineyard because of that. That's the first seven verses. And then the rest of the chapter are Isaiah giving examples of rotten fruit. Examples of the rotten fruit that he sees in the people of Israel of his day. And these come in the form of six woes. Now when we read the word woe in Isaiah chapter 5 and in all of Scripture... We should read that as both a warning of coming judgment as well as a lament of that sin. And that's really the tone of this chapter. 
the tone of this chapter, as it brings warning of the judgment that is coming, the warning is not, the tone is not strident and harsh, like a drill sergeant barking out what will happen to you if you don't follow his orders, but rather the tone here is one of deep disappointment and lament. And so let's read it in that tone and with that tone. Isaiah 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I look for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts is sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late in the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp and tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of His hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opens its mouth beyond measure and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down. Her revelers and he who exults in her. Man is humbled and each one is brought low and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall lambs graze as in the pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. 
Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down to the flame, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them and the mountains quaked. And their corpses were as refuse in the middle of the streets. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp, their bows bent, their horses' hoofs like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion. Like young lions, they roar, they growl and seize their prey. They carry it off, and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day, like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress. And the light is darkened by its clouds. Let's pray. Father, we thank you in faith for your word. And we ask that you would speak to your people this morning and teach us from this book, not just so that we would be smarter about what it says and means, but Lord, so that we might be changed and transformed to look more like your son. God, we ask that through your word this morning, you might remind us of how gracious and merciful you have been to us, how you have provided for us and protected us. And Lord, we ask you to shine your light of conviction on any rotten fruit that lies in our hearts and lives. And we ask, Father, that you would cause us to bear good fruit for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, chapter 5 begins with these first seven verses, and they are a song about a vineyard. Isaiah begins the song in verse 1 and says that he's singing a song for my beloved, and he says it is a love song concerning his vineyard. Isaiah's beloved is the Lord, is Yahweh, and his beloved's vineyard is Israel. And one thing to note here as we go through this chapter is that we we see the heart of God reflected in the heart of Isaiah. Because Isaiah loves the Lord so much his heart begins to break over the things that break God's heart. And I think it's important for us to take note of this. Because to the degree that our hearts don't break over sin, whether it's the sin that we see in the world outside these doors, or the sin that resides 
in our own sinful flesh. To the degree that that sin doesn't break our hearts, perhaps is the degree to which we still have a lot of room to grow in our love for God. The principle here is that the more we love God, the more our hearts will break over the things that break his heart. And perhaps nothing breaks his heart quite as much as when he beholds his people in rebellion against him. And that's what we have here. Isaiah begins this song about the Lord's vineyard, which is Israel and Judah, and he lists all the ways that the Lord has cared for this vineyard. He says he put this vineyard on a fertile hill. He he chose the hill. It was a fertile land. He says he dug it, he cleared it of stones, he planted it with choice vines. He he built a watchtower in the midst of it. He he hewed a white wine van in the uh, wine vat in the midst of it. He took care of that vineyard. He cared for it. He he provided for it. He protected it. He gave it every opportunity and advantage to be fruitful. And so his expectations for a harvest from this vineyard was understandably high. The end of verse 2 says, He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. The word for wild grapes there literally means stinking ones. He looked for it to yield good fruit, but it yielded stinking fruit. Fruit that had a foul stench because it was rotten fruit. So now the Lord himself joins the chorus of this song in verses 3 and 4 and says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. In other words, Jerusalem and Judah, you be the judge yourself. Whose fault is it? Who's to blame for the rotten fruit? Is it me, the farmer who has hewn out the rocks, who has cultivated the garden, who chose the right place for it, who protected it and provided for it, who made sure there was no thorns and briars? Is it me? Or Jerusalem and Judah, is it you? Is it the vineyard itself? And then the Lord asks in verse 4 some very good probing questions. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? And when I look for it to yield grapes, why? Why did it yield wild grapes? Good questions. What more could I do that I had not already done? The assumed answer to this hypothetical question, of course, is nothing. Nothing. God had done everything, given them every opportunity and advantage. And so that begs the second question, why? Why did it yield rotten fruit? Why indeed? And and God poses this question not because he doesn't know the answer to it, but because he wants the inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judah to come to grips with what they have done. When they should have yielded good fruit, they yielded rotten fruit. And so the Lord goes on to explain in the subsequent verses what he will do with his vineyard because it produced 
this rotten fruit. Verses 5 and 6. He says, And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge. No more protection. And what happens? It shall be devoured. I'll break down its wall. No more boundaries. And it shall be trampled. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. And briars and thorns will grow up. And I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Look, look there, church. Look, look at the evidence of common grace there. Look at, look at all that what God does that we so typically take for granted in life. He says, I'm protecting you. There is a hedge of protection around you. And the moment I remove it, you will be trampled down. We know what walls do. And he says, if I remove them, you'll be devoured. I will even command the clouds. He, he commands the clouds to bring life-giving rain. And he says, all of this is an evidence of common grace. And God doesn't have to provide it, but he does. And could remove it in an instant. And if he did, we would be undone. This is a word of discipline and judgment for God's people. Isaiah chimes back in here and he sings the final stanza of this song in verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting and he looks for justice and behold bloodshed and for righteousness and behold an outcry. And in your ESV Bible, it has a footnote there that there's a word play in the Hebrew that doesn't come out in the English, that the words for justice and bloodshed sound alike, and the words for righteousness and outcry sound alike. Emphasizing the fact that what was expected is not what came. What should have come from the advantage and the privilege did not come. Instead, it yielded rotten fruit. So this was a prophecy of coming judgment for the people of Isaiah's day. It's a warning to them that that their bearing of this rotten fruit will result in judgment from their God. And as we noted last week, when we look at these prophecies from Isaiah and really prophecies throughout the Old Testament, often there are many and varied horizons of fulfillment. And so the prophecy of this coming judgment would see partial fulfillment in Isaiah's near future. When God removes the hedge of protection around his people and allows the Assyrian and then the Babylonian empire to descend upon his vineyard and destroy it. And this very judgment is alluded to with greater uh, explicitly later in this chapter. But this also points to a day when God will take his vineyard away from them, away from Israel, and give it to another people, a people who will use it to produce good fruit. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus tells a parable about a master. 
And this master owns a great vineyard. And he leases it out to tenants. And then the master goes away to another country. And he sends servants back to the vineyard to collect the fruit from the tenants. But the tenants take the servants, beat one, kill another, and stone a third. And so Jesus says that the master then sends more servants. And they do the same to them until finally the master sends his son. And when the tenants see the son, they take him, throw him out of the vineyard, and they kill him. So after telling this parable, Jesus turns to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and he asks them a question. He says, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes... What will he do to those tenants? And the chief priests and the Pharisees answered Jesus by saying, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. To which Jesus replies, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. And given to a people producing its fruit. In other words, through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he takes the kingdom of God away from them and gives it to another people, a redeemed people. He gives it to the church. He entrusts this vineyard to us, church. He gives it to the people of God today who have been rescued from the judgment they deserve because of grace through faith in Jesus. And now he expects us to bear good fruit for him. And so as New Testament Christians, as we read these warnings in Isaiah 5, We should hear Isaiah calling out not only to the people of Judah of his day, but we should hear him calling out to us as well. Ray Ortland says that we should hear Isaiah asking us from this text, both corporately and individually, this question. Are we bearing the kind of fruit that demonstrates the transforming power of the gospel? Are we yielding an abundant harvest commensurate with the grace that God has invested in us? Those are great questions for us to consider about ourselves, about our family, about our church, about the church in America. Because you see, the church in America in the 21st century, of course, has been blessed inordinately with both resources and opportunity and privilege God has been so gracious, so generous in his care and provision of this vineyard in America. And and might we even say more explicitly, this vineyard among us, our church. The question is, what have we done with it? Are we yielding an abundant harvest commensurate with the grace that God has invested in us? 
Or have we received the grace of God in vain? Paul warns the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 1, not to receive the grace of God in vain. And that's the warning of Isaiah in this chapter for us today. Have we, the church in America, have we, New Branch, have we received the grace of God evidenced by His manifold provision and protection? Have we received all of that from Him in vain? Surely, the church in America is like the Israel of Isaiah's day. Chosen, blessed, protected, but along with that comes the expectation of a harvest of fruit. As Jesus explains in a parable that he shares in Luke's gospel, everyone to whom much is given, from him much is required. God has given us much, church. And so much is required of us. So what kind of harvest do we yield? What kind of harvest do you yield? What kind of harvest does a church in America yield for our vineyard owner? Good fruit or rotten fruit? The warning here in Isaiah 5 is for those who bear rotten fruit. Now, the remainder of chapter 5 here, beginning in verse 8, is Isaiah giving us examples of the kind of rotten fruit that he sees among the people of Judah in his day. And they come in the form of these six woes. Now, I don't think this list of six woes, these six examples of rotten fruit, is meant to be an exhaustive list of everything that Isaiah saw, but rather representative of the kind of rotten fruit that Isaiah was bearing in that day. And I think we should listen to Isaiah describe this rotten fruit and be warned ourselves not to let this kind of fruit take root in our lives and in our churches. The first woe and the first example of rotten fruit is in verses 8 through 10. And it's the fruit of greed and selfishness. Verse 8 says, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room. This is a picture of the wealthy who are never satisfied with what they have. And so they continue to amass wealth and land and real estate until what? Until there is no more room. And in that context, this would have also brought highlight to their selfishness as well because God had intended for the land of promise to be a land of inheritance so that subsequent generations would not be without land but yet these were amassing land and real estate and possessions for themselves and what is the result of that at the end of verse 8 you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. In other words, you keep doing this and you're going to find yourself all alone. Your, your land will be so big you won't have neighbors for miles. You will be isolated and alone. Isaiah is showing them that what this rotten fruit of greed and selfishness results in, and he continues in verses 9 and 10, by saying, the Lord of hosts is sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, 
large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. So he's describing desolation and isolation and lowliness, big homes with nobody in them, and massive crop failure, apparently. A bath was a unit of measurement equaling about six gallons. So imagine that. Ten acres of vineyard yielding only six gallons of wine. A homer was six bushels. An ephah was about a little more than a half a bushel. And so six bushels of seed sown and planted yielding only a half a bushel of grain. In other words, crop failure. Probably because there's nobody left to work the crops because they have amassed all of this land because of their greed. In other words, the rotten fruit of greed and selfishness leads to loneliness, desolation, isolation, and emptiness. Big empty houses and big empty fields. Friend, is there greed or selfishness in your heart? Are you consumed with an insatiable appetite to amass wealth and material possessions for yourself? This kind of fruit has a foul odor to it, and it is not the kind of fruit that God expects from his people. The second woe, the second rotten fruit, is self-indulgence and sinful excess. Verses 11 and 12, Woe to those who rise up early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feast. I can't imagine a more vivid description of someone who indulges in sinful excess. They get up early in the morning and they run after strong drink. Now, I like a good cup of coffee in the morning when I wake up, but I don't care how far away it is, I will not run after it. This guy gets up in the morning and runs after strong drink and apparently literally does so all day long because he drinks from morning until evening. As it says, he tarries late into the evening as wine inflames him. And what is the result of this insatiable appetite here for alcohol? End of verse 12. But they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. In other words, here's the principle. Sinful excess and indulgence causes us to lose our spiritual appetite. We have no, appetite, no more appetite for the Spirit. This is not a warning against drinking per se. It's a warning about indulging in alcohol or any substance for that matter that then ends up empowering us and controlling us. Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So the warning of this fruit tells us two things. First, this kind of self-indulgence is rotten fruit. And it's unbecoming of God's children. Drinking wine and strong drink in excess is sin. And it results in us losing our appetite for the Spirit. 
Do not get drunk with wine. That is debauchery. That word means living like someone who's never been saved. The second thing that this teaches us is that if we want to have the kind of good fruit that is in keeping with the transforming power of the gospel, it doesn't come from sipping from the Spirit in moderation, but from deep, repeated, and constant drinking in of the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit, Paul says. And so let us not indulge in that which dulls our appetite for the Spirit. Rather, let us indulge ourselves in the Spirit. Don't be so filled and overcome with wine, he says. Instead, be filled and overcome with the Spirit of God. Let us drink deeply from the Spirit, from the well. That God gives us that never runs dry. Now what follows after these first two woes is prophecy of judgment. What will God do with a vineyard that produces this kind of fruit? Verses 13 and 14 describe the judgment as exile and as death. Therefore, my beloved, go into exile for lack of knowledge. They're honored men, they go hungry. Their multitude parched with thirst. And then verse 14, therefore Sheol, which that's the grave, the grave has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down and her revelers and he who exults in her. And then verses 15 and 16 are a refrain of what we saw twice in chapter 2. You might recall from chapter 2, we saw almost the exact same words. In fact, in the Hebrew, it's exactly the same. That the prideful arrogance of man will be humbled and brought low, and the Lord will be lifted up and exalted. But here in verse 16, he adds a phrase there at the end of verse 16. The holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. In other words, God will show himself to be holy in the righteous judgment that he brings on those whose lives were characterized by this kind of rotten fruit. This judgment, as horrible as it is, as it seems, is a righteous judgment. It is fair and good and right, and it will display the holiness of God. Now, some commentators see a foreshadowing of the New Jerusalem in verse 17 as we have this seemingly pastoral scene of lambs grazing in their pasture. But sadly, I don't think that's what verse 17 is meant to convey to us at all. Because then Isaiah pans back and gives us a wider perspective of this seemingly peaceful pastoral scene. The end of verse 17 says, And nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. It's a picture of the desolation, of the aftermath of judgment. And it's made all the more acute by the juxtaposition of lambs grazing among the ruins of Jerusalem. This, in verses 13 through 17, is a picture of people in exile, starving with hunger, parched with thirst, and Sheol, the grave, 
is here personified as a great beast whose mouth has opened wide beyond measure, ready to swallow up whole these in exile. There's a picture that was meant to warn the people of Isaiah's day. And it's a picture that is meant to warn us today to be wary of this kind of rotten fruit taking root in our lives and in our church. So now back to the woes. The woes now continue with the third woe in verses 18 and 19. And this is the rotten fruit of enslavement to sin resulting in a mockery of God. Enslavement to sin resulting in a mockery of God. In verse 18, he writes, Woe to those who draw, that word means pull along, iniquity with cords of falsehood. Who draw or pull along sin as with cart ropes. The picture that he's given here is that of a beast of burden dragging a heavy load behind him. But he's not referring to a beast of burden. He's referring to a people. And the heavy load that they're dragging behind them is iniquity and sin. And they're dragging this load of sin with cords or or ropes of what? Falsehood. Deception. Lies. This is a very graphic picture of someone or many someones enslaved to to sin, in bondage to sin, dragging along with, with these cords wrapped around them as if handcuffed and shackled to sin. But the cords themselves are, are lies. They, they are deception. And so they've, they've begun to believe these lies. And these lies have led them to be enslaved to sin. Enslavement to sin, verse 19. They say, let him be quick. Talking about God here. Let, let, let God be quick. Let, let God speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. They're mocking God. God, just show yourself. If you're really there, show yourself. Show us your work. You see, the lies of our enemy are like cart ropes harnessing us to sin and iniquity. And the more enslaved we are to sin, the more we begin to believe those lies and disbelieve God. And the grip of, a har- of the harness gets tighter and tighter and tighter to the point where we find ourselves trapped. And we don't even know that we're trapped. We're just dragging that iniquity behind us. Apparently, there were some falsehoods that the people of Judah were susceptible to believing. And the more they gave themselves to these lies the more enslaved they were to sin. And the more enslaved they were to sin, the more contempt they had for Yahweh. Church, let us be wary of the lies of our enemy. Your secret sin isn't hurting anyone. It's no big deal to gossip about your friend. You deserve a lot more than what God has given you. You don't need to personally share the gospel. After all, God is sovereign, and if he wants your neighbor to come to know him, he'll take care of that. 
or any number of other lives. As I told the students on Wednesday night, our hearts are susceptible to lies and deception. And when we buy into them, they are like the cords of a harness binding us to a load of sin. But here's the good news for the believer in Christ. For the Christian who's put their faith in Jesus, we are no longer enslaved to sin. Romans 8 verses 1 and 2 say, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. In other words, if you are in Christ by faith, if you placed your faith in Jesus as your only hope to be saved from the judgment you deserve, then you are no longer under condemnation and you have been set free from bondage to sin. You can't be enslaved to sin any longer. So throw off the harness of sin and guard your life from these lies that serve to put that harness back on us. And if you're not a believer this morning, then the bad news is you are still in bondage to sin. And the only thing that will free you from that bondage is Jesus. Turn from your sin. Place your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ at Calvary and you will be set free from the bondage to sin. He's your only hope for rescue. You see, enslavement to sin, whether it is real in the life of the unbeliever or imagined in the life of the unbeliever, it is rotten fruit and it puts a foul stench in the nostrils of our God. Fourth woe is redefining morality and truth. Boy, this is applicable to our culture today. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. There were those in Isaiah's day who were trying to rationalize their sin by redefining it. And certainly we see this all around us today. Calling good evil and evil good. Abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism. All over our country, states, municipalities, school boards are trying to pass laws and ordinances making it illegal for parents to know about or even to step in and prevent their minor children from undergoing life changing procedures to try and change their gender if that were even possible talk about calling darkness light and light darkness but friend this fruit can be manifested not just in the public forum but in the private forum of our own hearts when we redefine sin as something else when we call alcoholism a sickness, then it's no longer a sin. It's not a little white lie, it's a lie. When we redefine sin as a challenge or a struggle that we are struggling with, part of the reason we do that 
is so that we can rationalize our engagement in that. The rotten fruit of redefined immorality gives off the stench of wanting to commit immorality without having to be culpable for doing so. Let us, church, use biblical language to define sin. And let us use Scripture as the only and final authority for defining the boundaries of morality in our world and day. Transgression literally means crossing a line. And so if we don't draw lines where God draws lines, then we're displaying the same rotten fruit that Isaiah was observing in his day. Fifth woe comes from verse 21. It's prideful wisdom. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. This is the arrogant insistence upon self-autonomy. I've got wisdom in and of myself. I don't need anyone else, and I certainly don't need God. I've got my own wisdom apart from Him. This is rotten, smelly fruit, and it's unbecoming of a child of God. The kind of heart that has been transformed by grace in the gospel is a heart that is humble and always ready to learn, especially from God. It sees all truth as God's truth, and there is no wisdom in me that did not first come from God. And the sixth and final woe, found in verses 22 and 23, is where we see the rotten fruit of the perversion of justice. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. Now at first, this sounds a lot like the second woe of self-indulgence and sinful excess. But the men who are described here are described as heroes and, and, and valiant men. And that describes someone who selflessly serves others and comes to the rescue of those who need help and can't help themselves. That's who heroes are. That's who valiant men are. But Isaiah is using heavy sarcasm here by saying that these guys are heroes at drinking wine and they are valiant men at, drink, at mixing strong drink. Some heroes these are. Far from being selfless and ready to serve the less fortunate, these so-called heroes are those who in verse 23 acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. These are self-serving anti-heroes who pervert justice for their own benefit. Church, we should all search our hearts to ensure that there is not any root of this kind of rotten fruit. Might we, church, might we find ourselves giving someone a pass on sin because we end up benefiting from them not being held accountable for it? That happens when a church does not hold its pastors and elders accountable for how they handle abuse in the church. That happens, quite frankly, when a constituency doesn't hold a candidate accountable for evil and debauchery in his life. Perhaps I'm reading too much into this, but there may be implications here for our election year if we are paying close attention. The focus here seems to be those 
who are so concerned for their own comfort and indulgence that they are willing to sweep justice under the rug. Now, just as with the two woes, they are followed by, therefore, judgment is coming. These final four woes are also followed by, therefore, judgment is coming. And judgment is presented in verses 24 and 25 as this consuming fire that is the wrath, a manifestation of the wrath of God. As it says in verse 25, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and He stretched out His hand against them and struck them. And what's the reason for this display of His wrath? End of verse 24. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. And church, at the end of the day, that's what any and all of this rotten fruit is all about. A rejection of the law of the Lord of hosts and despising the word of the Holy One of Israel. And what we have in the remainder of this chapter, verses 26 through 30, we see this wrath of God enacted to arouse the nations around Israel and Judah to bring judgment on His people. In verse 26, it says, He will raise a signal for the nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly and speedily they come. God will use the nation of Assyria and then the nation of Babylon as His instruments of judgment. And all he has to do here is whistle for them. And they come quickly at his beck and call. And none is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. In other words, they are ready and they come prepared for battle. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows are bent. Their horse hooves seem like flint and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion, like young lions they roar, they growl. And they seize their prey. It's visceral. These lions, they carry it off and none can rescue them. They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress. And the light is darkened by its clouds. Church, we can't dismiss this as Isaiah only warning the people of Judah of his day. Rather, we must see this a warning for us today, both corporately as a church and individually as Christians. Isaiah warns us of bearing this kind of rotten fruit. We have been so blessed by the grace of God. Let us not receive the grace of God in vain by squandering the opportunity and privilege that He has given us by bearing this kind of rotten fruit. But instead, let us bear fruit in keeping with the gospel. Let us bear a harvest for him, commensurate with the grace that he has invested in us. As we close and as we sing a hymn of response in a moment, I want you to consider three responses to this text. First, to the degree that you see this kind or any kind of rotten fruit in your life? 
that is not in keeping with the transforming power of the gospel, use this time to confess that and repent of that. Turn away from that in faith. Secondly, use this time to ask God, to beg of God, to cause you and I and our church to bear fruit in keeping with the gospel for His glory. And then lastly, let us rest and remember that the answer to us failing to bear good fruit is Jesus. Jesus tells us in John 15 that He is the true vine. And the Father, He's the vine dresser. He says, every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit is taken away and burned, but every branch that does bear fruit is pruned that it may bear more fruit. And then Jesus says this, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, Jesus says, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit For apart from me, you can do nothing. The third response is for us to abide in Christ. To abide in our Redeemer. To abide in His Word. To drink deeply from the Spirit. So that we will bear much fruit for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for the warning of this passage of Scripture. And we know it is no empty warning, for we know history itself. And you fulfilled much of what we see here in the defeat of Israel and ultimately the defeat of the southern kingdom as they were led away into exile. That means that you will fulfill this in full. Father, would you... Remind us. Remind us of all the ways in which you have blessed us, provided for us, protected us, cared for us. And that that is something that we must steward as the vineyard of today. To not bear fruit like this that puts a foul stench in your nostrils, that doesn't bring glory to you, but rather to bear fruit for your glory. And so God, we ask that you would do that in us. Father, we confess the rotten fruit that exists in our life. But we are so thankful for the truth of the song that we sang earlier. Though our sins are many, your mercy is more. This is why we need a Savior. Left to our own devices, we just bear rotten fruit forever. But by your grace and for your glory, we can bear good fruit for your glory. But it's not us. It is you working in and through us. And so, Lord, help us to abide in your Son, Jesus and rely on His grace and His power. And God, would You bear fruit in us and through us to exalt Your 
holy name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.